Hello, everyone, and welcome to Integrated Rhythm. Two swing dancing besties, that's Chisomo Salamani and myself, Bobby White, navigating race and the black experience in jazz dance and swing dancing and other Afrocentric social dances. If you've been a listener of Integrated Rhythm, you've already heard our guest on our block party episodes because we love having her around. We're talking about none other than instructor, MC, and Lindy Focus meeting co-host, Laurel Ryan. By the way, Laurel also puts together our music with Michelle Stokes, and we consider both of them good friends and a part of the Integrated Rhythm family. Because we had such a great time chatting, our original interview went for around four hours. We here at the podcast are still learning how we do things and still trying things out. We didn't think a four-part episode was quite the answer, so we did some editing and came up with two episodes. But we loved our conversation, and if you liked these two episodes and wanted even more on pretty much everything we discussed, we'll be publishing the extended three-and-a-half-hour conversation on YouTube after we launch the second part next week. Oh, also, we bleep out a few names. That's what the chime is. You didn't just get a notification or anything. By the way, what's this fantastic music you're hearing? It's none other than Baron Ryan. That's Laurel's brother, a badass pianist who plays symphony halls and does TED Talks and such, and and he's known for his combination of classical music and jazz music. How could we afford these rights to this music? Well, his new album is rights-free. You heard us right, but we'll tell you more about him in the break, or if you just can't wait, head over to firstofitskind.net. All right, let's get to it. Laurel Ryan! So, I mean, how did the interview with uh, Laurel go? Did you talk about <laughs> her great MCing or experience as a black woman or her teaching philosophies? Like, oh, we mostly talked about basketball. <laughs> we talked sports football. and how we're bad at them. <laughs> Lindy Hop followers for life. <laughs> what an incredible <laughs> podcast. <laughs> Things we are not good at. <laughs> I can list so many more. <laughs> Someone out there might need to hear it, you know? Well, okay. I will say this. Being both, uh, so I come from kind of an exceptional family. Like people in my family are very good at a lot of things. And I am not as good as anyone in my family at the things that they're good at. So I came from like exceptionally talented stock. And I like talking about high school in, uh, I watched my older sister get into like the selective choir right off the bat because she came in um, and when she was in 10th grade, I was in eighth. Our brother was in sixth. And, uh, and she like got parts in the musicals, which they had every other year and got into the show choir. And I was like, well, obviously I will follow the same path Tis I. <laughs> and then I got into high school and did not and, like tried out for all the same stuff, but did not reach the same level of success like never got into show choir i finally made it into the like the select choir uh when i was i think a junior and that was when my brother came in and made it in as a freshman and then he made it into uh like the show choir and so i was like on either side there are there's there are plaques in uh, my high school with both of my siblings names on them because they won awards for how good they were at performing arts and how like varied their talents were. They were also in the musicals. And so um, I got accustomed to being outshone by the people around me and still finding joy in it. And I think that was a really valuable skill because overall as a as somebody with, for a long time, undiagnosed ADHD, I was a late bloomer. Like, I didn't know what I was good at. I didn't know what I wanted. Uh, and, I mean, not like, it's not as though that every person with ADHD is, you know, un, I was about to say unfocused, but that's a, that's a <laughs> oops, <laughs> that's kind of the definition, uh, is unambitious, I should say. But, uh, like, I kind of, 
like any opportunity that I found, I was like, yeah, I'll try it. But uh, I became comfortable at a very like vulnerable time in my, like in most people's developmental like growth, I became comfortable with not being the best at everything I liked doing. And so um, that really changed the way that I, like when I got involved in Lindy Hop and then found the competitive side of it, that was one of those things that I was like, look, when I, you know, when I start comp- competing and losing, I'm like, well, I still know who I am as a person. I have learned to disassociate my value from my performance yeah. in this area. But yeah, yeah that that's awesome. That's, that took me <laughs> yeah. so, that took me so long to get to. I'm still, you know, some contests, I still struggle a little bit with it, but like, yeah, I used to like completely put my value as a human being based on how well I did in a contest. It wasn't very healthy. I was going to say that's super healthy. And here's what I know that your brother is a highly accomplished recording artist, but here's a question for him. Is he recording stuff for integrated rhythm? I think <laughs> not. <laughs> so that he, he was on our alternate list. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, uh, we might allow him to record something, but we know who we want on our team. So Laurel, how'd you get into Lindy Hop? Oh my gosh, great question. Thank you so much for asking, Bubba. Uh, how did I get into Lindy Hop? I was, Lindy Hop filled a void for me. I had just moved back. I had spent four years after college teaching English in Japan. And so, you know, I mean, four years is enough time to build up a community and, um, and I had hobbies and a social circle. And then I came back to Tulsa, Oklahoma and cried a lot. Like I, uh, I moved back to be closer to my family. Uh, there had been some health scares and, you know, being, across the Pacific, I was just so, I was learning everything late. And I was like, well, I don't want to be this far away again. Um, and so I came back home and didn't know what I wanted to do. I didn't want to, I have a degree in education also in French, but you know, one of those is more useful in my part of the world than others. (laughs) And, uh, and so I didn't want to teach in Oklahoma because they don't treat their teachers very well. And, um, I, and I was living at home with my parents, um, and ended up getting a job at my old high school with people in the arts as an assistant in the arts program and loved the people who I was working to support. The job though was absolutely not suited for me. And uh, the first paycheck I ever got, I cried. I was like, I'm never moving out of my parents' house. Uh, this is what I get for constantly working for nonprofits, but, uh, <laughs> that's another subject. Uh, but I like, I just, I had nothing. So when I had left in, in Japan, I had been involved in like four nights worth of activities. Um, and I, I had an active social life. And so like just being alone with my thoughts and then being like, well, I guess I'll watch the end of lost. I don't know what else to do with my time. Uh, aside from mourn my, <laughs> my social schedule. So all of that to say, like to put you in my headspace when I was like, I'll, I just need something to do. And um, at the time my siblings and I were in a, Uh, Sunday school class and there with two couples of note one couple was opening a coffee shop that would have like a little event space called foolish things and now they foolish things I mean they've done very well for themselves they're great people should come go to foolish things coffee in Tulsa and then the other couple uh were uh 
those names might be familiar to people who were dancing in like the early teens of Lindy Hop. But, uh, you know, like the kids of a biracial marriage, like we keep our eye out for other biracial pairings. And so immediately, like, we're like, aha, <laughs> we see this husband and wife duo. And they were like, ah, we have daughter, the daughter who has hair like yours. Uh, <laughs> that's all it took for us to be like, let's strike up a conversation. And uh, so the couple who was opening the coffee shop had um, just basically said, you know, for our promotional, oh, I mean, I don't know how they worked it out, but part of their opening was a Lindy Hop lesson. And so I was going with my siblings to support this opening of the coffee shop. And then um, there was also a dance lesson to music that I was familiar with because I'd grown up, like my father is a, a jazz and classical, I mean, classical jazz ragtime pianist. Um, so, I mean, I grew up listening to a lot of the music that we danced to. So, and I'd also been a kid in the nineties who tried swing dancing. And then it was like, why are we only doing three counts worth of steps to an entire song that is in four feet bars? It's in four, four time. And we're only doing, I hate it. And so I got bored and left, uh, stopped dancing. Cause I was like, this is dumb. And, uh, and so I was learning, like there was this 30 minute crash course and, uh, that, hot and I was like this these steps make sense like this goes to the music this this actually works and uh and so I like I enjoyed that and I I went back one more time they started having like monthly lessons and I want to say it was like the next time that I went back I was going pretty late. So I was, I was getting there after the lesson, after they'd been dancing for a while and I showed up and my sister was talking to this uh, young, pretty black woman who I, I assumed my sister, big introvert. Um, I assumed that she knew this person because they were so like doing a lot of physical comedy and being really goofy, which for somebody like my sister, it takes her a while to, open up like that. So I was like, oh, she must know this person. Uh, and I was introduced to Michelle Stokes. And then as we were leaving, my sister was, I was like, did, did you know her? And my sister was like, no, we met just, <laughs> we just met then. And so uh, I immediately having somebody who was uh, like getting into the dance around, I mean, Michelle She'd been dancing for maybe six months. Um, and also, I, I heard her episode. She was like, I've been dancing for, I don't know, six years? No, she's been dancing since 2012. She has no concept of years. Uh, <laughs> which I, can really, I I understand, like, not getting time, but she's been dancing longer than she thinks she has. Uh, but, yeah, it was just a, it was just a fun activity. And um, when I got into it, Part of what helped was that I was going with my siblings. And then uh, I consider my birthday, my swing anniversary, because that was the time that my parents and my siblings, we all went to our local dance together for the first time. Uh, and like this Gina took me and my sister over to the side and basically showed us how to do Charleston and uh, people got my parents out on the dance floor. And I was just like, oh, I love this. I love this community. And there were two very, uh, very good black leads on the floor. So I wasn't like the only dark person in the room. And so it was a, at first, a very comfortable environment. And, uh, and because I was alongside Michelle, and my siblings, like other people who were new to this dance form, then I didn't have that feeling of like struggling to catch up with everybody else. And the general attitude was like, 
people were just happy to have you. And um, so I would say for about like a year and a half or so, I was just kind of taking it like pretty casually. Uh, I'd stop going for, you know, three weeks at a time because I'd get busy and uh, and then come back to it. And it was, you know, it was just like this fun thing that I knew I could do on a Saturday night in a church gym uh, <laughs> that I went to. And also they would always go out to eat as a group afterwards. Anybody who could join, it was an open invitation. Sometimes we'd go try to find more music to dance to. And then it just became like, let's go eat some pizza. And so there was this community building aspect to it that I think is pretty unique um, to the Tulsa scene at the time. And something that as I've gotten more, as my relationship to the community and to the dance has matured, something that I've tried to take with me is this aspect of um, like a familial bond Maybe, you know, it might be like family reunion style where there's like somebody who has your nose, but you only see them once every like six years or so. But it's still like, hey, we're we're a part of the same thing. And, uh, you know, it doesn't matter how long we've been doing this or how intently. But yeah. So my my introduction to Lindy Hop was uh, like it, it just filled a lot of holes in my life. And so like a lot of things, I like, I dove into it with this enthusiasm, uh, you know, and, as, you know, trusted anything anybody told me. I was like, sure, that's, of course, I believe this is how it works. I don't know any better. And I was promised a husband, uh, which that has not planned out. So, you know, I've learned not to trust everything that people tell me about the dance, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I also, I was promised that, you know, I, if, if I worked hard enough and, and um, got into the right competitions, you know, follow this path that I would be teaching on an international level in three to five years. And I was like, sure. Yeah. I believe this. Uh, and of course, you know, once I started getting more involved, once I started traveling and then actually comparing my circumstances to the people who I was seeing around me, I was like, ah, nah, that's not gonna, it's not gonna work for me. I like <laughs> my, uh, my path here is not going to be the same as what I've been told. So. Also, I, you know, some, something Tosomo and I have talked about a few times is how um, that idea, the very idea of that path and that specific path has kind of changed over the years, right? Like pe people who, like I remember coming up in the 2000s, you know, you saw the, you saw the path that people like uh, Naomi and Todd and Scott, you saw the path that those, your, your peers in age, you saw the path that they had taken. You're like, oh, okay, it seems like a five-year kind of trajectory. And if I just like, you know, do X, Y, and Z, which, you know, first off, it's, it's impossible to like do something exactly the way that someone else does it and to go about it the way they go about it, especially if you don't have those same circumstances, exactly like you said. But I've also wondered if like, um, you know, it's been a long time since uh, since new generations of teachers have, have risen through those ranks, the, the way that people perceive those ranks to be and on top of that one could argue that like no one has like you know very very few people have like gotten to those ha have gotten that path at all in the past like 10 or 15 years yeah yeah i would argue that there's a bit of a glass ceiling there <laughs> so there's you've got the uh um world champion international instructor situation and there there are you know yeah yeah it's, it's an interesting interesting thing I, I did want to comment and say like how beautiful is your entrance story like that's so lovely you know and um I think oftentimes when we think about like different people's experiences particularly those of people who's like who have identities that are marginalized we 
inevitably kind of like trip into the space of like things that were unwelcome or um, being disregarded or, you know, um, being cast aside or forgotten. But, but the fact that, like you said, you had a friend um, that like, like Michelle and your energy together is infectious. And it sounds like the energy that she had with your sister upon meeting her was just like explosive and amazing. And then you had this couple in your backyard that was, that reminded you of your family, like just, it seems like the feelings and the thoughts that you had as you were entering were really warm and also kind of representative. And so it's like, it's like, Hey, everyone, this is what is possible. When I first was involved, uh, having people who were, um, like clearly looking out for me and excited for me to be there because I was another non-white potential dancer, but it wasn't that kind of tokenization because we already had other black dancers who had like, I'm sure they had experienced plenty of it before we got there, but they made space for us. Um, and that was invaluable to me continuing to be involved even when like Lindy Hop hurt me, you know, like the, the, the scene or the structure or whatever. Um, and I do, I mean, I say this, I think people in a, the, the U S Western culture, quote unquote, is a white dominated society and a white, uh, driven society currently. And so to be not white in a white driven society is to be accustomed to being hurt by things that you enjoy. Like at some point you are going to, um, you know, if you're not white at some point, a thing that you like is going to get like the, you know, a sprinkle of white supremacy is just going to come in and be like, ha no more enjoyment for you. And so I think, you know, growing up in the U.S., growing up in a deeply conservative state like Oklahoma, I, you know, it's, it's something that you learn to deal with at an early age. And even though like your tolerance level for uh, that kind of BS is going to change with the day. You know, um, then still like at some, you know, it's, it's something that like, regardless of what you're involved in, you're going to have to like, that's, that's a thing that kind of like is constantly rolling off of our backs is like, this is, it's going to hurt being involved at some point, but almost everything does. Uh, if you don't, uh, if you're comfortable talking about it, would you mind mentioning a few of the things that you mean by Lindy Hop hurting you? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a lot of little things, you know, the old microaggression. So once I <laughs> the left old microaggressions. that old chestnut, <laughs> <laughs> so in my home scene being um, compared negatively to the friends I was making who were also like the, my fellow followers. Um, so Michelle, we had a couple of other friends who were um, like more experienced in the dance, but who we were like getting along with. And uh, so we would be, you know, I'd be compared to them like, or uh, when I was, as I said, you know, growing up hearing this music and mind the music that I was hearing was more, I would say fifties and on. So I wasn't listening to a lot of Fats Waller per se, but Duke Ellington, Count Basie, Ella Fitzgerald, Nat King Cole, um, the Mills brothers, these people, Billie Holiday, these people were part of my vocabulary. The very first album I bought with my own money was Peggy Lee. Like I knew this music um, and my, you know, had grown up hearing it played and hearing it performed and, uh, listening to, and watching my father improvise. And so, uh, it, but that 
prior experience and prior knowledge meant nothing. So, um, or uh, just proper basic teaching pedagogy. As, when I started dancing, um, it was very much like, okay, it was lecture style. So I am the teacher. I will tell you what you need to know. Um, and the you're here to hear me talk. <laughs> and if you're not talking, you're running a drill so that you can look like me. And uh, so the, the sense of self-expression was as soon as I started traveling, especially, but even in my home scene, because those people had been taught by the people before them who had the same type of terrible pedagogy, um, you know, they didn't know how to teach any better themselves. So like there was a, I remember within my first couple of dance classes, I was already thinking, okay, how would I explain this better? I'm hearing a lot of mixed metaphors and, uh, <laughs> and poor analogies and, and confusing instructions. Uh, how would I structure this better? Um, and, and it was so easy for something that was so interesting to get boring as soon as it was in a classroom setting, like there's something wrong about that. There's, you know, my brain isn't being engaged because I'm there to be a prop for the leader who's trying to learn to move. Uh, and if I don't quote unquote, do it right. And that means like make the leader think that they did the thing that they were like achieved the shape that was being required um, and look good doing it, then, uh, you know, I'm a bad partner. And then uh, as I started competing and traveling, then I ran into the old, uh, who's going to ask the new uh light skin girl to dance. Um, and you know, if that was a, it was a nice thing about having, um, is because once, and he would tell us like, okay, we're going to, if you're coming to this event where I'm teaching, come ask me to dance. And you know, he, he didn't hold back. If you couldn't dance, he'd dance around you. And then he'd disappear on the floor. Uh, and pop back up again behind you and like, ah, how did my arms get in this position? Why am I in your armpit? And then, uh, I used to bite him. Uh, and <laughs> look, don't put me in your armpit, man. Um, <laughs> but, uh, anyway, <laughs> yeah. And so like, it was that cause he had seen it before and he knew like, okay, you're going to have to prove that you're worth asking to dance and I know that every every follower and possibly every dancer has had this experience where you're in a new environment and somebody asks you to dance who you've seen in a competition or you've seen in the middle of the jam circle. And then their response after, once the dance is over is, huh, that was fun. Like, I expected to be doing you a favor. And it turns out we were having a partnership. And, you know, that's, it never feels good to know that's what's happening, but meh. Uh, I think it happens more often to non-white women and not, I, you know, I was never the sl most slender person in any group that I have ever been in. I mean, I'm blessed to be around like super hot people, but, uh, you know, like <laughs> praise the Lord. I have hot friends, but I've, uh, you know, always for, for my height, I've always been kind of like wide set. Uh, I wouldn't like call myself fat, but you know, you know, carry, <laughs> carry some padding and, uh, and then kind of being unintentionally gaslit by well-meaning women who, when I'm like, I think one of the reasons why I'm being overlooked is because I'm not white and because I'm not skinny. And then the skinny white women are like, no, 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 of course not. That's not the case. When mm. they feel bad because they're part of the group, that's, they don't like thinking that they have a privilege, an unearned privilege. But 
you know, then that leaves me to be like, okay, what else could be wrong with me? Because it can't just be all men every or all I, I shouldn't say all men, but all leaders everywhere. Um, and uh, or even when I started teaching, because I knew I could craft a lesson. And, okay, let me preface by saying I am not the best teacher out there. I'm good. I will say that with confidence. I'm very good. But there are people who are better than I am, who I'm happy to learn from. Um, like D-Lock, I will always sit in on one of her classes if I can, because she just has like excellent teaching strategies. Uh, and can I, can I jump in yeah. here for a second? Like, yeah. so you were formally trained as an educator though. That's the thing, right? Mm -hmm. So you had this background of teaching and so theory and practice, right? And yeah. so, and, the, and when you were in Japan, you were teaching and yeah. D-Lock is also incidentally mm -hmm. an educator. So, <laughs> so it makes sense that this is an area that you are like, watching, you know? Yeah. So I, when I, when I first decided I wanted to teach, it was because I was seeing a lot of problem areas. And even from the people who are like, oh, best classes ever. I go into those classes with high expectations and then be like, oh, this is the same stuff, the same techniques. These, it's all the same structure and it's not working for enough people. And, um, so when I first was trying to put my name out there and I was working with my friend, Casey Davis, who a treasure of a human being also blessings upon your head, uh, <laughs> may the ghosts not steal your soul or why ever we say, it. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> uh, I like, so Casey and I, um, like two, and I mean, Casey, you know, this white guy, but neither of us are the skinniest people in the room. Uh, we just have a lot of enthusiasm. And I know that between the two of us, we can craft a good lesson. Because um, Casey's going to bring, Casey has like coaching experience. And I have come from an educational background. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to come in. Uh, we might do one one event for free because apparently that's how you get your name out there. But then I'm going to charge, I think I said it like $50 an hour. I'm going to come in at $50 an hour because that's how long it takes to, you know, that's my worth as a seasoned educator. And um, I think I had been practicing dancing in earnest. I mean, maybe two years, which is longer than a lot of people when they start been like, I'll teach. Um, and I'd been teaching in my home scene. So I was like, obviously, you're, you know, this is a steal 50 bucks an hour. Uh, and I'm giving you four to eight hours of my life, plus all of this other like, social dance time, etc. Like, I'm going to add value to your event. And people were like, ah, it's expensive. That's too expensive. And I <laughs> was like, I don't know how to tell people in more clear terms that this you're making a big mistake again. Not that when, I when am you just when you just said $50, I was like, that is way too low. Laurel <laughs> in my head. I was like, if I was there next to you, when you were making that decision, I would have been like, no, go higher, go higher. But there you go. Okay. Yeah. In the Midwest, 50 bucks an hour for a beginner level teacher. Uh, because for some reason we decide that our most precious resource, new dancers, should be assigned to the least experienced teacher. Um, you know, right. that works. Right? Yeah. That oh, is man. very true. It It is. And honestly, as you mentioned, it probably makes more sense for brand new teachers to, be, to teach like intermediates or uh, more advanced instructors. Like, but our whole understanding of how to teach I think our whole paradigm needs to shift because of like the whole like I'm an expert and everyone else has zero knowledge that that whole dynamic is not helpful to people either but um but yeah you're right you heard enough and now it's time for the break 
you, yes, you listening to this podcast, you can take a class from Laurel. She'll be teaching online for Lindy Groove Thursday, April 15th, 2021. The class is free to live stream on Facebook and YouTube and is at 8.30 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Trust us, it will be both very good and very fun. By the way, what is that fantastic music we're listening to again? It's Baron Ryan. That's Laurel's brother, a badass pianist known for his combination of classical and jazz music. His new album, First of Its Kind, is rights-free. You heard us correct. Anyone can use it. Put it on your podcast, your YouTube video, your own music project. It's all yours. Want the album and any of his other work? Head to BaronRyan.com. Want to hear him play with Ryan's father, yet another badass pianist? Head to RyanAndRyanMusic.com. And most importantly, you can contribute to Barron's project of making rights-free music. Because as delicious as it is, you can't live off of admiration and appreciation. Go to firstofitskind.net. Check out the story, learn how awesome this project is, and help support it. That's firstofitskind.net. Hey everybody, this is Bobby White from Integrated Rhythm. We're here to ask you to please consider donating to the podcast. You can do so by going to patreon.com slash integrated rhythm. You can do so by Venmoing at Bobby Swungover. And make sure to put a little IR in the note so we make sure it goes to the right people. You can also do so by PayPaling at Bobby White 3. And once again, putting a little IR in the in the window there. Doing so will help us keep this podcast going, and we love doing it, and we hope you love it too. If you can't afford to donate at this time because times are rough, we totally understand. We don't want you to put yourselves out. We want you to keep enjoying the podcast for free. However, if you have a little bit of pocket change in your pocket, we would greatly, greatly, greatly appreciate it. Thanks, and have a great day. We're back. So for a while, I was kind of under this influence of like, well, this is how dance classes go. I haven't taught dance before. So this is, this must be how it goes. Something's not right. So I'm going to do my best to like slightly change it. And it wasn't until, I don't know, like three or so years ago that I started to really overhaul the way that I was approaching class. Cause I was like, Hey, this is, uh, I'm bored doing it. I don't like the way that I'm planning classes. B, it's not addressing the issues that I see on the dance floor of, um, you know, people just not knowing what to do with themselves when there isn't a prescribed move. And C, I like how I'm doing one, two, three on my fingers. Uh, C, it's not addressing the diversity of thought issue. So um, that was another big thing for me. And that's another, you know, if assuming we're still talking about like how Lindy Hop has hurt me, diversity of thought. And while I do think a lot of people, a lot of neurodiverse people are attracted to swing dancing and any sort of physical activity that is also social, uh, like it's, it just hits all of those, like the chemicals that aren't getting to the right spots in our brain, Lindy Hop like allows all of them, you're with friends, you're touching people, you're listening to music, you're dancing, you're moving your body, like creative problem solving out the wazoo. So it like hits on all of our strengths. And yet, and yet I still felt stifled, especially when people would start telling me, I don't like the way that you do that thing. So I would have, I mean, and some people would think they were helping. They're like, you know what? I'm going to give you a private lesson here real quick. Or I'm going to show you, like, you were told not to swivel for the first two years uh, because it, like, messed up your momentum. Uh, and so uh, I'm going to show you how to swivel. So I would do what I thought a swivel was just with my, as it was comfortable in my body, with my particular a bevy of aches and pains. Um, and I would have somebody come in and be like, well, I mean, try, try it this way. Try doing this other thing with your hand. 
okay, you've got the rhythm of it, but let's try making it look a different way. And I pretty <laughs> quickly, uh, fairly early on, started to tell people, I don't want to know anything about aesthetics unless it affects my technique, as it were. If it affects my ability to execute this move, yes, tell me to do this thing with my hand or uh, to place my feet this far apart during a swivel or to, um, you know, twist my hips this much um, or to tilt my head at this angle. But if it doesn't affect my ability to just execute this move, don't tell me because we don't have the same body and I'm tired of trying to look like the skinny white girls. <laughs> and I know all, like all the bigger white girls are like, thank God, not me. Well, you're still white. So you got an advantage there. <laughs> and you're gorgeous anyway. This dance is full of gorgeous, gorgeous folks. Um, so uh, yeah, like being, but you know, like anybody who gets frequently told you need to look a certain way in order to do this. And I kept thinking to myself, like, why am I letting these, this is a black dance from Harlem. Why am I constantly letting these like European, these white Europeans tell me how I should be dancing. And while my black side I'm is Caribbean black, my connection to this dance is uh, no less valid. It, you said earlier, um, this idea of like unintentionally being unintentionally gaslit by, by people with privilege. And I feel like that is such a salient point. It's such an important point to remember, um, that, uh, in an effort to make people feel better, we often want to erase difference. And so we want to be like, I, I, I know that I've had, like, I hear you on saying, when you say that you have a bunch of hot friends, I'm like, yes, I'm in the hot friends club. Like I have all sorts of hot friends. And so I've had friends who are, you're so funny. Thank you. Thank you. I would say you're my hot friend, Laurel. Um, <laughs> so, um, but I've had friends who like, where I'll be like, I'm fat or I'm chubby. And they're like, no, you're not. You're beautiful. You're perfect. While that is partially right. Um, the other right part is, um, what you're experiencing is true because of the world's perception of, um, of size, of physical size and, um, of, of color. So yes, there are people in the world who are, looking at you in a particular way. And when we look around and swing dancing, um, when we look at the majority and what is accepted and what is praised, it's often um, more white and more thin. And here's the thing about oppression is that nobody wins. So even those people who are white and thin don't feel like they're thin enough or like, um, elite enough or whatever, or even if they fit in that category perfectly, there is this fear that they will lose it. Like they will, you know, like they're one burger away from losing it or, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Uh, and so, so, so yeah, so everybody suffers with systems of oppression, but um, people who are more towards um, the other side of the paradigm or the furthest away from the paradigm. So um, less thin, less white, less heteronormative, less um, a quote unquote able, um, older, like as uh, when you start sliding that scale of privilege over to the other end, um, we have very real experiences um, that are hurtful. So. You know, when you mentioned that Somo, I, uh, I, I feel like the dance is the dance, especially in the modern generation over the last 20 years, the dance in a lot of ways is pushing itself towards a physical elitism. Like think about like when you have your con, when, when you have your finals of the contest, you know, you're dancing to like 250 BPM 
And you know what moves you've learned in classrooms, they're, you know, they're designed for a very specific body type and level of, of athleticism. And is that what we want the dance to say? Like, do we want there to be like this, like physical elitism, uh, physical elitism to, you know, our competitions, particularly when like a lot of the invitational dancers, they don't dance that fast. In their contest. Mad. <laughs> oh, Bobby's going right? down. Yeah. No, yeah. So like, so like, you know, uh, an invitational level dancer can show off to like a groovy song or that kind of thing. Um, or they get to choose, you know, in one of those like, you know, choose the speed style contests, which, which can be really fun. Right. Um, and you and your partner get to decide where you want to, where you want to be. Um, yeah. yeah. Whereas opposed to levels below that, they don't necessarily get that that same thing. And again, I think it's um, it speaks a lot to the way the dance has been taught, because you have people of very specific body types. The majority of the ones teaching the dance, and so they teach the dance according to what dancing means to their specific body types. Yeah, yeah, and and so there's these interesting categories. Like, so there's a the question of. Um, competition and physical elitism. And then when we think about gatekeeping and access to teaching. So going back to your earlier point, Laurel, of wanting to be an international level instructor, um, we recognize that the people who are offered that are often people who have been killing it in competitions for a while. Like they go out, they throw it out in competitions. They are um, dancing super fast and then then they're invited to things and then so on, right? So if the gateway to that like international instructor place is through that route, is through the competition route, then um, the, then there's a certain, certain set of values that everyone feels. Um, but like we've also talked that about the fact that competition and teaching are different skills. I'm so sorry. I'm, oh, no, go ahead. Yeah, that really, that really made, um, uh, yeah. And so, so you, you know, imagine going back to going back to Laurel's first experience, uh, where uh, her first experience was someone telling her, "Okay, this is the this is the track to get." This is the path to get from point A to point B, point B being international instruction. And imagine that like your idea being like, okay, well, I follow that track. And then after that, I can do what I want. Like then after that, I can express myself to jazz music in the way that I feel. But first I have to make sure to dance in X, Y, Z ways in order to fit the mold that people want on that scorecard. And I've also like, ugh. Uh, the times that I have won competitions and then walked in on my, like, I've been in a couple situations where it's like down to me either solo or as a partner versus one other person or one other couple. And then if I, and then somehow I won always, always through the crowds, never through the judges themselves, always through crowds. Um, because I appeal to the crowds. I love to stroke a face, you know, pre-COVID. Uh, now I will pretend to stroke a face. And um, and then walked in and heard the person who I had just like, quote unquote, defeated, just absolutely either in tears or talking shit about me. And then like, I don't know who this person is. Like she came out of nowhere this title was going to be mine. This was my year. And I'm just like, I'm going to pretend to be invisible. Um, oh God. And, uh, and then I start being like, did I not deserve it? Is this tokenism? Are like, it will make you absolutely crazy. Um, and I don't know. So there's the, an NPR podcast called It's Been a Minute. And uh, hosted by Sam Sanders, a black man. But he said something to the effect of like, um, you, you don't know if you're being undervalued just because you're a person of color. And, but you also don't know if you're being tokenized and therefore being given more just because you're a person of color. Neither of those situations are good. 
but you have no way of knowing the difference really because most people who are either undervaluing or tokenizing you don't realize what they're doing most people don't engage in racist behaviors on purpose and um or gaslighting behaviors on purpose like there aren't it's not like we're jam-packed with sociopathic uh like deliberate white supremacists it's a system it's a way of thinking that has been ingrained in so many people and the concept that like oh no i know because i'm an adult in this world tokenism and racism those are bad things so i would not participate never not not i and so when people find themselves as being part of the problem they don't they are uh, they are either incapable or unwilling to recognize it because they're not bad people racists are bad people so they're not racist because they're not a bad person you know like they have good intentions so how could they how could they be racist um and so when it's in a competition situation and i have i have won it has not since the very two the very two first competitions that i won not since then have i ever been sure that i won because of my skill and not because of my color. And that's why I don't like competition. <laughs> Man. Yeah. There's a lot of stuff embroiled, like enmeshed in there. And like, yeah, it's, it is hard. Like you said, being in a system where oppression is the norm, you just kind of get used to being heard all the time. And so then along with that, there's imposter syndrome where you also get used to questioning your worth. And so there's this functionality where you're like, I'm going to do the thing. I'll do the competition. I'll teach. I'll do whatever. But there's always a voice that's questioning, like, do I belong here? Should I have gotten this? Should I, you know, um, this, like, am I good enough? You know, um, I, I, I hear you. Like it, it, yeah. it wasn't until my, my third year as an instructor uh, at my university where I won an international award where I was like, well, maybe I could teach at the university level. <laughs> where I am currently <laughs> employed. <laughs> I'm currently employed. Yes. <laughs> it, I am 100% being honest with that. I did not really share with people. I was just like, I don't, maybe I can, you know. Um, so I, I hear you. It's, <laughs> like it's insidious. It's just woven into the yeah. fabric of how we function. And so, yeah. Um, and I think that also feeds into, you know, again, so the, my biggest influence when I was a baby swing dancer was a black instructor and it was so clear, um, you know, maybe not at first, but as I, again, as my relationship to this dance matured um, and this community it matured that it was clear that his experiences, a lot of the advice that he was giving me and Michelle um, came from that place of not knowing whether you were being undervalued because of your skin tone or uh, tokenized. And, and now that I say, I'm like, oh, you know, if only maybe things had you know, would have turned out different. Integrated rhythm with, with Tisoma and Bobby. Bobby.